Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Before we jump in today's uh, interesting uh, topic of health care, I want to get this comment. Responding to yesterday's program, you'll recall we uh, talked with Margaret Witt, who's on campus for a workshop, and uh, her book uh, is uh, Short Stories of the Civil Rights Movement. We've talked about civil rights and about civic engagement in today's polarized world. Uh, so Glenn has responded. He says, I would just like to share my epiphany related to the topic today. I initially entered college as an engineering major. USU was a top 25 engineering school, and in the late 80s, early 90s, the school had more science projects in space than the next five schools combined. I was also a hardcore conservative, staunch believer in American exceptionalism, and spent my waking hours listening to the then just coming of age right wing talk radio. John Lennon said, Life is what happens when we're making other plans. Well, for me, life happened. I had to leave school in the middle, had kids, took on a career, worked on the family farm. Finally, at one point, I re enrolled into USU at the local extension. And as it was an extension, the availability of majors was reduced. Therefore, I opted to follow a passion of mine and went into history. One of the most stark and certainly a watershed moment for me was when I was in the fourth week of U.S. history, 1877 to the present. The class started in January. When February uh, began, we jumped right into black history without regard to the normal timeline of events. One assignment was to listen to a couple of Martin Luther King's speeches. I remember listening to the one in particular about going to the mountain and the one about one inch in reference to an attempt on his life from stabbing. I was sitting in the library crying. I was so moved that it has never left me. It has strongly influenced me almost daily. To this day, I owe a great debt of pure gratitude to my professor for this moment. I still, to this day, cannot listen to those speeches without getting watery. So speaking as a born-again liberal, you'll, you never know what will strike a chord, no matter how small the assignment or learning event. To me, my college was well worth the money and then some. I sincerely wish that I had been able to finish and reap the benefits from it sooner. Thank you for all you do. That is Glenn. Thanks, Glenn. Keep those comments coming at upraxcess at gmail.com. Welcome now to Access Utah. Republican leaders in the U.S. Senate have delayed a vote on their Obamacare repeal bill. It's called the Better Care Reconciliation Act until after the 4th of July recess. We're going to talk about the U.S. health care system on the program today. And we want to know what you think. Are you in favor of keeping the Affordable Care Act? Do you want to go further? Uh, perhaps Medicaid for all, universal single payer. Um, would you like to see the American Health Care Act, which passed the U.S. House, or a version of the Senate bill take the place of the Affordable Care Act? Should the U.S. health care system be more market-based? What should the government's role be? And what are you most concerned about personally? Costs? Coverage? You can tell us your story. We'd love to hear your story. You can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us. Our number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Later in the program, we'll be talking with Jason Stevenson with the Utah Health Policy Project. The first half hour, we have with us Ed Red, who's a medical doctor and uh, state representative, Republican uh, from the Logan uh, area. Ed Red, uh, welcome back to the program. Hey, thank you very much. Um, interesting to get your take as a medical doctor, not only a consumer of health care, but a provider of, uh, of uh, health care. What's your take uh, on the Better Care Reconciliation Act? You know, it's really interesting. It's, it's, um, it gives more flexibility back to states, which I think is potentially a good thing. Um, because sometimes we have local issues and local resources uh, in the, in our state, or even in smaller, you know, designations like counties and places. And um, sometimes when you have a one-size-fits-all approach to healthcare, you end up spending more than you need to to get good outcomes, and giving you some flexibility back to the states to do waivers and and try to come up with uh, improvements in how we deliver healthcare and how we finance health care and how we um, take care of our, the people amongst us that are very vulnerable, I think is can be a good thing. So I think part of it is good because it's, it gives some flexibility. There's other things about the bill that I'm a little concerned about. Um, so let, let's go immediately there. What are the things you're concerned about? I'm concerned about participation in health insurance plans. Um, we're taking away the mandates to to have health insurance for people who don't think they need it, I guess. And um, 
and I, I'm not I'm not in favor of forcing people to purchase health insurance, but I think, you know, back in 1986, we had a, um, you know, we passed a bill called EMTALA, which Ronald Reagan, President Reagan signed at that time, which was a bipartisan effort to try and prevent dumping of uninsured patients from one hospital to another hospital. But in the process of passing that bill, we also started down a pathway which people can argue for or against, that we've decided that health care is something that everybody has access to, whether they can pay for it or not. And and so it's kind of a dilemma. We're, we're, we're in a situation in our nation where, where health care is something that people can have access to through the emergency room, whether they can pay for it or not. The, the emergency rooms can't refuse care. It's against the law to refuse care. Um, so some people may decide not to get insurance and say, well, you know, I'm healthy. I don't, I don't need it. I don't want to pay, you know, $500 a month for something I don't need. And and uh, as long as they're healthy, I guess that works for them. The problem is when they get sick, uh, then they become uh, basically a burden on everybody else who pays into the system. And and that's that's where I'm kind of concerned about about how do you how do you be, give people incentive to participate in the system because. At the end of the day, most people uh, most people use the system. Some people uh, have really serious health care problems that require enormous expenditures that they could never afford themselves. And as a society, we've sort of decided to, you know, spread the costs around by purchasing insurance. But if people choose not to purchase insurance, then you, you self-select. Or if you have the option to say, I'm not going to buy insurance, I don't have to, then you have the option to say, okay, um, you know, you, have the, you basically... The, the, the market self-selects for very high-cost individuals who say, I can't afford my health care. I've got type 1 diabetes, and the insulin costs $1,000 a month, and I, you know, I'm making $2,000 a month, and, and I can't afford that, so I have to have insurance. So, so people who have health care problems and, and, and illnesses will, will certainly buy insurance. People who don't certainly won't, or not certainly won't, but sometimes will not because they don't anticipate problems and are trying to you know, do what they think is in their best interest. So my concern is... If you don't have a way of having everybody participate in the system, then you you set yourself up for a failed system. Hmm. If you're an insurance company, and that is a concern that's being uh, expressed, if you uh, keep prohibition against denying someone for pre-existing conditions and you remove the mandate, then as you were saying, that's that's uh, the insurance company can't survive. On, well, I, on I, don't, I don't think they can, or that the costs go so high that mm-hmm. nobody can afford insurance, which is kind of what's happened on some level. In the individual markets, you know, um, for people who are not insured through their employers in the, in the state, you know, with the subsidy markets and things like that, uh, you know, we start off with four providers, four insurance providers in the state, I think we're down to two now, and, and they're they're wondering if they can go on. And, and as, as costs continue to rise um, because of the self-selection of very or more expensive, you know, healthcare, you know, patients into the insurance programs that they eventually they can't make it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you look at even small groups, like the small employers that have, you know, 120 employees or something like that, if they have one person inside that group that has a really expensive illness, the rates go up for the rest of the group to really high levels. And so it's, it's the same concept, but on a very much larger scale, people mm-hmm. self-select. If, if they're able to self-select, they'll self-select and say, People who who have problems will buy insurance to take care of the problems, and people who don't have problems will say, "I'm not going to pay for this. I'm just going to pay the penalty." Or in, in, in the case of the new the two bills, the House bill and the Senate bill, there is no penalty. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what incentivizes people to, to to participate in the system. Yeah, I mean there has to be some. I think there has to be some responsibility. There has mm-hmm. to be some personal responsibility. But the Intala law back in 1986 kind of sort of on some level took that away a little bit. You mm-hmm. know. I want to follow up with that. First, I want to read something from uh, Don Ruzica. Uh, he is uh, associated with the Eagle Forum. His his wife, I think, still heads up the Utah Eagle Forum. Um, and uh, he wrote an op-ed in the Deseret News uh, recently arguing for a completely market-based uh, system. He says uh, his second reason for that, a truly free society involves risk and inevitably rewards uh, those who uh, take personal responsibility to become educated and then use opportunities and resources of a free enterprise system to improve their economic position. In doing so, they also create economic opportunity for others. The government's only responsibility is to ensure a level playing field and protect against unfair and illegal business practices. So you seem to be saying, uh, Dr. Red, that you, you would feel, I don't know if you go as far as he does, totally just well, market-based, no mandate that you have to take someone at the emergency room? Well, that, that's, that's, I mean, that's not where we are. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, that's long. That's a very long distance from where we are right now. Because the, the, the horse left the bar. <laughs> the the ships okay. left the harbors out in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. I mean, we, okay. we're, we've already decided. You know, you know, I graduated the year I graduated medical school. Actually, that uh, we're going to take care of people regardless of their ability to pay or willingness to pay. Yeah. Um, so I want to explore that a little further. I want to get this uh, email in uh, from uh, Gene Lown. Uh, who has emailed us to upraxcess at gmail.com. Hope you will, too. Love to hear your story. What are you personally concerned about? Uh, do you have insurance? Uh, will that be, will your health care uh, personally in your family be enhanced or not under a version of the House bill or the Senate bill as presently constituted or under Obamacare? Would you like to see something different? Um, love to hear this on a personal level or your, your general take on this, upraxcess at gmail.com. You can call us 1-800-826-1495. We have with us uh, Ed Redd, who is a medical doctor and a Republican state representative. And later in the program, uh, J- Jason Stevenson from Utah Health Policy Project. This is Gene Loud. The Republican health care bill is a major job killer and will cause the closure of many rural hospitals that are dependent on Medicare payments. Allowing people to not enroll in health insurance allows them to be free riders. They will still go to emergency rooms and allow others to indirectly pay for their care. People who incur large medical bills that they can't pay result in them filing for bankruptcy, again, shoving their costs onto others. The only solution is single-payer with everyone covered, like all other industrialized nations uh, in the world. I mean, single-payer systems are what a lot of people are kind of you know, clamoring around that or arguing for that. I, you know, I worked inside a single-payer system, sort of, I guess you could call it that. I worked inside the VA system for several years during my training. And I think there's, you know, uh, when you have a single-payer, you don't have any competition. You don't have any You don't have any options, quite honestly. If you don't like your single-payer, that's too bad. Or if you don't like what they're providing or you don't like what somebody way far away from you in a different state or back in Washington, D.C. decides you don't have any real options under those circumstances. Of course, the wealthy still have options because they can s- still go out and pay, you know, private health care out of their back pocket if they want to. But, but for the average person in, in in our country, when you have a single payer system, there there is no competition, and and quite honestly, sometimes those kinds of systems. I mean, they can work. I'm not saying they don't work. There's countries where they they do have you know they do have some you know good outcomes. Um, but but I still think you know when you don't have you don't have the option for going somewhere else. Sometimes uh, you know, single payer systems can can really turn on you. And I think I don't think we understand that because we never lived. I personally, maybe maybe people in the audience have, but I have not lived under a single payer system and had an illness. I mean, there's lots of people who are healthy who lived in Canada or England or someplace like that, and or you know speak highly of the single payer systems. But I think you know if you have a problem or a serious illness, uh, you're somewhat at the mercy of you know decisions that are made outside of your you know, your area of effect. You don't have any, you know, you don't have any will, really, you, you lose your ability to, to, to have any kind of um, control over what happens. And uh, I think about, for example, sometimes we incentivize certain behaviors by how we reimburse certain treatments and, and outcomes. Uh, and and, and, and single-payer systems certainly could do that to a much greater degree than multi-payer systems because there'd be no options for people to go somewhere else. Mm. We have a caller, a caller from Roosevelt. Um, appreciate your call. Go ahead with your question or comment. Um, my comment is, um, I, I'm a senior citizen, I'm on medic, I mean, I get the, the free Medicare for hospital, but, um, I don't get very much Social Security, 560 a month, and so, I haven't signed up for the rest of Medicare because it's they want a one third of my social security to pay for Medicare insurance. My my husband is a veteran, he gets VA. My son is also disability, he gets SSI and social security. But I I I just think that it costs too much. I try to be healthy and live healthy and take vitamins and and so I'm an uninsured senior. 
thank you for telling us uh, your story. Sounds like you've got access to Medicare, but it's not not, not enough. Not enough for you. You you could use some more coverage. Uh, well, um, if you count if you count my husband's right now, I I have a husband, so we, he gets Social Security and he gets a, other little jobs. So like it's close borderline. If we could qualify for other help, but if if I didn't have my husband, then I would totally com. I would totally qualify for state help, but right now, so so I I have. I'm just scared of high costs at the hospital of. Like I only have one prescription, so but blood tests are a hundred and fifty each time, and so this year I haven't even done my thyroid blood test because the hospital gives me a discount for cash, but it still it all scares me of costs of medical. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Appreciate appreciate your call. Appreciate your uh, your experience there, Doctor Red. This this um, puts me in mind of uh, probably a lot of people. Uh, you know, maybe have some insurance, maybe have Medicare, maybe have something, but uh, it's not enough to meet everything. Yeah. So that that really is a concern. People people with you know significant disabilities, people who may have maybe been a low-income situation uh, between jobs, out of work, or um, retired, or unable to work for other reasons. Um, I mean, they, they, they can sometimes be in a really difficult situation. And, and I think the important thing to understand is there are resources in most communities to try and help people who are low-income and may not have adequate insurance coverage or no insurance coverage. Obviously, we're not doing, we're not able to pay for really expensive procedures like, you know, you know, cancer treatments and, and uh, you know, heart bypass surgeries and things like that or hip replacements. But, but there, are, there are resources for people uh, that may be in low-income situations and need, and need some uh, help to get, you know, access to health care. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, have a physician, but if you can't afford to see that person, that's a big problem. If you can't afford to get lab tests done, that's also a big problem. And I've seen many patients in those circumstances where they have a problem that needs to be diagnosed and treated, but they don't do it because they don't have the financial resources. And sometimes that res- that results in really horrible outcomes, uh, including death, uh, premature death that didn't need to happen because they didn't access the resource. I, the thing I worry about when we talk about MTALA laws, I worry about people not going to the emergency room when they need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people say that oh, we shouldn't go to the emergency room. It, you know, it just raises healthcare costs. I say, well, some people need to go to the emergency room. They don't have any other resources, and they need to get some help for something that could, you know, take their life. And over the years, I've had several patients who stayed home because they didn't have access to healthcare or felt like it was going to cost them too much, and they ended up dying because of it. They didn't. They didn't anticipate death. They didn't see it coming. They didn't see. You know, they didn't, they didn't anticipate they're going to be, you know, dead the next day or something like mm-hmm. that. But that's what happened. And I just so I've seen that happen. Uh, there are in our local communities. There's things called community health centers, uh, which are federally subsidized clinics that basically offer low cost, not free health care, but low cost health care uh, for twenty twenty five dollars a visit uh, for people in situations where they can't afford a hundred fifty dollar thyroid test or or a lot of blood tests, they can actually get seen by a physician or a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner uh, evaluated and oftentimes treated for a very reasonable amount of money. And again, this is not, this is not you're not going to be treating cancer or treating really expensive diseases this way, but you can provide basic health care for people who are in low-income situations or between jobs or having problems financially in their lives. And I think those we have two of those here in Cache County. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's uh, there's uh, one over in, Brig- over in Tremont and there's along the Wasatch Front. There's a number of these community health centers that people can go to when, when they're in really bad situations and uninsured. Mm. Looks like we have another uh, caller uh, coming online. We'll get their their name. Uh, another caller. Um, go ahead with your question or comment. Um, hi, this is uh, Linda Bettinger calling from North Logan. Um, I have uh, two questions. Um, <clears throat> I've heard people uh, who are for keeping the uh, Affordable Care Act uh, saying just fix it, uh, fix the problems with it. 
Um, but I have the, uh, I have not heard anybody say specifically what uh, the problems are that uh, need to be fixed, the most pressing problems. And my second, uh, so that would be my first question. My second question is, um, um, I've heard that if this does not pass uh, the Senate, that the Trump administration uh, can maneuver things so that the Affordable Care Act will indeed um, implode, and um, so I am wondering how they, how can they do that? How can the Trump administration undermine the Affordable Care Act so that it doesn't even uh, work as it is now? Thanks, Linda, for those questions. Very good questions. Uh, sure, Doctor Red, uh, the first one. What, what are the problems with the ACA? Yeah, let me take a stab at the first question. So, some of the problems. I mean, there's a lot. Of, there's the, the ACA is really a very complex. It addresses lots of issues. It's not just this one bill that addresses one issue. So parts of the ACA, both the House version and the Senate bill, uh, keep, you know, the 26 age category for, you know, cover your kids until they're 26, no pre-existing condition clauses, and rating based on age only kind of clauses. Those are all still in these both these bills. And so those those are deemed by most people across the country to be good parts of the ACA. I think the parts of the Affordable Care Act that are sort of spiraling, I don't know if you call it a death spiral, but I call it a problem, is that the individual insurance market where people who don't have insurance through their employer or, un- or, or self-employed or whatever, they go out, they go out and get a, a sometimes subsidized policy. Uh, and again, because of self-selecting of people who have illnesses, the health care costs inside those insurance pools are really high because a lot of people are choosing to pay, you know, the penalty, the $650 penalty, whatever it is, or 2% of your, you know, gross income, which is quite a bit less than, than your insurance premium would be. So a lot of people are choosing not to be insured, and the people who choose to get insured are higher-cost individuals. You're not, you're, not, you're not spreading the costs across a large body of people, some who are healthy. Because of that, a lot of the providers of these insurance products are deciding not to provide them anymore. And there's some areas in the country that don't have any access to any of these, you know, you know, these uh, individual marketplace products because the providers figured out they can't make any money at it, so they've jumped ship. And again, in the state of Utah, we, we, we're down to two now. And we're, we're at four, and we started this whole process out several years ago, and now we're down to two. And uh, they're struggling too. Uh, and so uh, the high-risk pool... Uh, and trying to address the high-risk pool is something the Affordable Care Act hasn't done a very good job at. And both these bills uh, take some, you know, federal funding to try and address and support local market or local insurance products to keep them going uh, to take care of some of these really exceptionally expensive individuals that are in, in private insurance pools. Uh, and I think that's really important to understand. that That's part of the ACA that has not worked very well. And I think that's part of both bills are trying to address that issue. Um, I think the other thing both bills try to do is reduce, you know, overall federal expenditures uh, as far as a deficit reduction issue. And and they have different approaches to doing that. Uh, but, you know, the Office of Budget, uh, they basically did an analysis on this and, and, and determined that both of them are going to reduce, the Senate bill is going to reduce it by $321 billion over over 10 years, and the House bill reduces by 119 billion to the federal deficit, which, which I mean, for some people, that's way far away from what we deal with every day in our in our daily lives. But that has an effect on our our lives too. When we have a high federal deficit, uh, that causes problems with inflation and devaluation of currency and all sorts of other issues. Not to mention economic instability and and, and problems like that. So I think, you know, addressing the federal deficit is important. But I think the biggest problem right now with the Affordable Care Act is is trying to address supporting um, the high-risk pool of people that are self-selecting to be in the, in the, in the products that people are buying on, on this, you know, private, not the individual marketplace, you know. What about Linda's uh, second question? What, uh, what can the Trump administration do to, uh, to uh, sabotage? To, to I, 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 no, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Okay. I, I just... we'll, we'll pose that to Jason Stevenson when he uh, comes on. My vague understanding is that uh, they could withhold um, subsidies to some of these markets, but uh, we'll, we'll ask Jason Stevenson uh, that uh, question. I want to, uh, now we have to get going, uh, Dr. Red, um, and I want to uh, preface this by 
uh, quoting from Senator Mike Lee, junior senator from uh, Utah. He says he's right now he's a no on the Senate bill, but he says uh, you can get me to yes. He says uh, conservatives like me, and I guess he would uh, say Rand Paul and Ted Cruz and others, uh, Ron Johnson, uh, have compromised a lot uh, uh, as as they've gone along, but he but he says he's still willing to, and he doesn't want to compromise anymore. But he they can get his yes vote if they'll just I guess just maybe is a wrong word if if they will agree to allow uh, kind of a federalism approach, a total opt out of all provisions of Obamacare and let the states uh, be laboratories. He said some liberal states would go to universal single-payer. Other states would go to a different approach. And let's see what works. And again, I, I, I really, having worked in the state legislature for a number of years now, I, I don't see that as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But I think there has to be some understanding that uh, on some level uh, we can't just jump ship and, and kind of self-select for our own, our own population, for example. I mean, if you if you let that go too far in one direction, you could actually – um, you know, you could actually have a state that says we're not providing anything, and everybody that has significant health problems ends up moving out of that state and, and influencing in a negative fashion other people's, other states' you know issues. So I think, I think if there's some qualifications to that statement, I think I can agree with that too. Um, I think states see things much closer to the people than than the federal government does. It's not that the federal government doesn't mean well. It's not that they don't have good employees. It's just that they're very far away, and they really can't address individual circumstances or local circumstances, even statewide circumstances on a really effective you know, level. And that's why we have different levels of government, whether it's municipal governments, whether it's you know, county governments, state governments, and federal governments, because we all have kind of different responsibilities. I think as long as there are some guidelines and some, some expectations about what healthcare looks like, I think states probably are in a better situation to, to be the laboratories of, of you know, what works. And uh, certainly, you know, I mean, that could include some states going to the single-payer system thing and other states not. And, and we can learn from each other's experiences and, and, and over time, over the next 20, 30 years, figure out how to, you know, what works best. And, and quite honestly, what works best in one state may not work really well in another state. That's that's the problem. When have, that's the problem with having a federal policy that for everybody. That just, I mean, even in the state of Utah during our legislative sessions, we've run into several situations where, where the Affordable Care Act, Although I think it meant well, I don't think that it 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 it, it wasn't flexible enough to to allow us to make some changes uh, that we might be able to make, you know, uh, and especially with Medicaid and things like that to try and address some problems we have in our state. So I think that's kind of the way I see it. I think more flexibility to states is is a good thing, but there does have to be some, as long as you're accepting. Um, as long as you're accepting federal dollars, I think there has to be some expectations. If you're going to say we're not doing any health care anymore as the federal government, that'd be a huge change. And saying the state's going to have to run it all, then we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to come up with a, a bigger tax base or bigger revenue stream to take care of what we're currently providing with the help of the federal government. So people have to understand that. If you're going to, if you're going to say we're not taking federal dollars, uh, then you need to figure out how you're going to. You know, what you're going to do? How are you going to accomplish what needs to be done? There are people in our in our state who are doing the very best they can, who still are struggling immensely. So I think you have to you have to address those issues too. Well, uh, Dr. Red, Ed Red, he's a medical doctor and he's also a state representative, Republican uh, from the Logan area, has uh, joined us in the first half of the program. We're going to take a break. Come back with uh, Jason Stevenson from the Utah Health Policy uh, Project. Dr. Red, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, we would, uh, I'd love to hear from you. We've heard from a caller from Roosevelt, heard from uh, Logan, wherever you are. I'd love to hear your uh, story. What are you most concerned about as we debate health care in the United States? The Senate Republicans have uh, uh, kicked their bill down the road until after the 4th of July recess, still trying to get that passed. Um, what do you think of that bill? What do you think about the Affordable Care Act? What about the House uh, bill? Um, want to hear your story, how this is impacting you personally. Love to get uh, uh, your experience if you've lived under single payer, perhaps got sick and had to avail yourself of uh, of the system under single payer, some other country. Uh, the place to call is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. More following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Republican leaders in the U.S. Senate have delayed a vote on their repeal of Obamacare uh, until after the 4th of July recess. Their bill is called the Better Care Reconciliation Act. We're going to talk about, we are talking about the U.S. health care system on the program uh, today. 
and we want to know what you think. Are you in favor of keeping Obamacare, Affordable Care Act? Would you like to see the American Health Care Act, uh, which passed the U.S. House, or a version of a Senate bill take the place of the Affordable Care Act? Uh, should the U.S. health care system be more market-based? What should government's role be? I'm especially interested in hearing your personal story. We have heard some of the stories so far today. Love to hear yours. How is this impacting you personally? How are you doing with health care in your family? What are you most concerned about? Costs? Coverage? You can email us to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Um, or you can call us, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. I'd love to hear your experience if you lived under a universal single payer, say a different uh, country. Uh, Dr. Red said he essentially uh, practiced medicine under uh, kind of a single payer system. He, he did his early uh, practice in the uh, Veterans Administration. He said there are some problems. Um, love to hear your experience. Um, personally, as a consumer, perhaps. We bring in now Jason Stevenson, who is with the Utah Health Policy Project. Uh, Jason Stevenson, welcome back to the program. Glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, Your general take on the Better Care Reconciliation Act, what do you think? You know, this is a bill that, that shows its process, and by that I mean it's been rushed through the Senate with no public hearings, no experts, no testimonies, a lot of backroom deals that introduces a lot of, I would call, you know, dramatic changes to our healthcare care system. Um, changing Medicaid as we know it uh, is the first thing, and then really also altering the, uh, the promise of health care that we've known for the past couple of years, that when you go to the doctor, it's going to cover the things that you need and that you're going to get financial help to both pay your premiums and bring down your deductibles. It changes all that, really throws it out the window and, and weights the uh, health care system towards those that are younger, and healthier, uh, and those that uh, also pay taxes, you know, people earning over $250,000 a year. Um, this is really a bill that uh, is designed to help them. Uh, I want to start with uh, pre-existing conditions uh, on the face of it, and, and uh, I've heard some senators, Republican senators, saying we keep the mandate to uh, insurance companies to not uh, refuse people with pre-existing conditions. So what's, what's your view on the what the bill does. You know, they're correct when you actually look at the bill text. It says that, you know, pre-existing conditions cannot be used as a basis for discrimination. But there's another element to this bill that makes it very easy for states to get rid of what we call essential health benefits. This is the package of 10 essential benefits that Utah put together four or five years ago that says you've got to cover maternity care, you've got to cover hospitalization, prescription drugs, uh, mental health has to be on parity with physical health. These are things that people have grown used to over the past couple of years, knowing that uh, there's not a fine print exclusion in their insurance that's going to make it so that the test that their doctor wants isn't going to be covered by their insurance. States are going to be able to get rid of that and really create what we call Swiss cheese insurance. So one thing that insurance companies could do is they say, you know what, we're not going to cover insulin. We're not going to cover maternity care. And then all of a sudden people with diabetes or those that are trying to expand their families are going to find themselves cut out of this insurance, really discriminated against. So it's a backdoor way to discriminate against the people who have pre-existing conditions. Uh, and, and many people see this as absolutely happening and uh, changing the way people use their insurance. Before we dive into some other specifics here, and I do want to follow up on the Medicaid I uh, want to get your answer to a question from a uh, caller. Linda in North Logan called us. Uh, she said, for, asked first of all, what are the problems that uh, Republicans cite with the ACA? They say it's imploding. Dr. Red uh, talked about that. Uh, have you responded to that if you'd like? I'd like especially for you to answer her second question, which is uh, she's been hearing that the Trump administration uh, can do some things that would hasten the demise of the ACA. Well, they actually are already doing that. Um, one thing that we've seen in the past couple of months is uh, they've threatened to withhold the cost-sharing payments to insurance companies. These are payments that actually bring down deductibles for 110,000 Utahns and millions of people across the country. Uh, they're designed to shrink the deductible for people earning less than 250% of the poverty level. Trump administration is kind of hemming and hawing on whether they're going to make those payments. That drives insurance companies crazy, and actually in Utah, Insurers here say that that's going to cause their rates to go up 20% just because of the, the games that the administration is playing. But to get back to your original question of what are the main complaints with the ACA, I just want to say that Utah Health Policy Project does enrollment across the state. We have folks in Tremont, folks in Logan, 
folks in Brigham City, across the state, helping people sign up for insurance. So we realize that there's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of problems. Um, things have gotten better since the early days, but there still is an issue with cost uh, when it comes to premiums and deductibles. What the ACA did is it created sliding scale subsidies to help people and pay their premiums and those cost-sharing reductions to help reduce their deductibles. But there are some people who are left out, people who earn more than 400% of the poverty level. It's about $97,000 for a family of four. They are outside of that premium zone. They don't get uh, any help there. So what we need is we need some targeted tax credits, some increased subsidies, some expanded health savings accounts to make insurance more affordable for them. Ironically, the Republican bill actually makes more people ineligible for these subsidies. Uh, right now, if you're in more than 400% of poverty, you can't get a subsidy. The Republican bill makes that 350%. So there's about 10,000 more Utahns who are going to find themselves unable to get subsidies based on this bill. So the, the gist of it is, is that the Republicans have had a lot of complaints about the ACA, and this bill actually just makes the issues they've been complaining about much worse. We're talking with Jason Stevenson, who's with the Utah Health Policy Project. We're talking about health care in the U.S. and specifically keying off the Better Care Reconciliation Act, which is now on hold until after the 4th of July recess. Uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, the, the Republican leader, uh, will try to reconcile the wings of his party. Uh, moderates who are concerned about uh, people losing coverage, concerned about Medicaid, uh, what the bill would do to Medicaid. And uh, on the other side, uh, people like Senator Mike Lee of Utah, um, are concerned that this is just not a repeal of uh, the ACA as they, as they wanted it. Uh, it's just kind of some modifications. Uh, so we'll see what happens. It's high stakes, of course. This is health and this is life and death. Uh, we'd love to hear your personal story, uh, how healthcare is going for you and what your opinion is. 800-826-1495 is the number to call. Toll free, 800-826-1495. Or you can email us to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Here's Carl. He's emailed us. He says, our society is so messed up. We can spend billions and maybe trillions on weapons, war, and tax breaks for the richest people. And then we fight over health care for our citizens. So much for being a Christian nation. Uh, your your take, Jason Stevenson. You know, we do hear that a lot, and, and people do make the comparison of the United States to other industrialized countries where we spend double or two and a half times as much as our health care and yet still leave 10% of our population uncovered and still have worse health outcomes. Um, you know, obviously the, the very uh, wealthy in the United States get great health care. We have sheiks and presidents and kings coming to the Mayo Clinic to get their health care uh, and things like that. But in terms of a comprehensive system that helps everyone, we really fall behind many other countries. Uh, and so people look at that disparity. Why do we spend so much and get so little? And they get frustrated. Uh, and there's some very interesting infographics going around that show, you know, that we're behind on infant mortality. We're behind on, on cardiac death, behind on a lot of other health issues. And a lot of it deals with the fact that 10% of our population, which is actually much smaller than it used to be. It used to be about 20% of our population before the Affordable Care Act do not have regular access to health care. Um, you know, go to the emergency room only when things get very bad. Uh, and if you talk to any provider, including Dr. Red, uh, who has a lot of experience working with underserved patients, he will tell you that that is the worst way and the worst kind of health care that can be delivered uh, that usually ends up with some bad outcomes. What do you... Uh... Do you see opinion moving? I think some Republicans are saying they're, they're warning that, uh, hey, if we don't get something done, um, the Democrats, what the Democrats are learning the lesson is that, uh, you know, you can't compromise on, on health care. And so when they get power again, it's going to be universal single payer. I wonder what, what's your take on, on movement of opinion? Do you think there's movement toward that? Medicaid for all, yeah. for example? There was something interesting that was mentioned yesterday uh, by Senator McConnell, the majority leader in the Senate. He told his caucus of other senators, Republicans, if you don't work with me on this bill, I'm going to have to talk to Chuck Schumer, who is the head of the Democrats in the Senate. And I think actually a lot of Americans would be like, hey, that's good. 
let's actually have a bipartisan bill. Let's actually talk about this. Let's figure out how to actually address the problems. One of the major failings with the Affordable Care Act was that, although it started as a bipartisan effort and there were Democrats and Republicans meeting for months and months to work out details, it eventually became a bill that was only supported by Democrats. And a lot of that had to do with political gamesmanship at the end of where Republicans did not want to to sort of join the effort, even though um, Sue Collins and Olympia Snow from Maine were very close to voting for it, two Republican senators. So I think Americans are fed up with this idea of a whipsaw approach to health care, where Democrats do it one way, Republicans turn around and do it exclusively another way. Not only does it hurt our health care system, but it makes family decisions about jobs and moving and benefits, and when their kid gets sick, a lot more stressful. Uh, so the idea of Chuck Schumer and Mitch Kamel sitting down and sharing a beer or whatever they drink uh, and figuring something out probably sounds pretty good for most Americans and most Utahns. Well, what are the broad outlines you'd like to see uh, in improvements to the health care system if, you know, the Republicans and Democrats could get together? What would you like to see? Well, you know, first let's start with a bill that doesn't cost 20 million people to lose their coverage. You know, I think that is, that is a good way to begin, right? You know, we brought our uninsured rate down from 20% to 10%, uh, even lower in many states over the past couple of years. Let's try to keep that going, because as any doctor or any provider will tell you, when someone has insurance, it's a lot easier to send them to get that MRI, to have that extra test, to make sure that that baby gets its pre, you know, the mom gets its prenatal care and the baby gets delivered and, and followed. Without insurance, that's where people fall through the cracks. So keeping people insured is a good way. Let's, let's try to keep our status quo and actually improve that number, not uh, bring it back to the dark ages. Second, let's address the cost issue. We know that probably about a half to two-thirds of medical care is actually wasted care. So let's bring in the electronic medical systems that have been expanded over the past couple of years so that doctors can actually talk to each other, know what has been prescribed for a patient, and can work with patients to not overuse their medication or overuse medical care, but get just the right amount that they need so that we're not spending as much as we have been in the past. And I think the third thing we need to do is bring in the young and healthy people into the market. You know, here in Utah, over half of our marketplace enrollment are people under age 34. We are actually one of the best states in the country in terms of bringing in young people to our Obamacare marketplace. A lot of those people are kids under age 18. We're actually number one in the country for that. But other states are not doing as well. And so we need more incentives to bring those young and healthy people into the insurance marketplace, not only so they get the preventative care and the help that they need, but also so that it balances the risk so that those that are older and sicker don't have to pay 50% of their annual earnings for their health care, which is what the Republican bill actually makes people over age 50 do. So those are a couple of very quick and bipartisan, easy-to-understand solutions that we could all work on. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we're faced with a bill that will cause, uh, just report I saw today, 245,000 Utahns to lose their insurance over the next 10 years. One of the more um, impactful on one side, others would say inflammatory um, statements that people are putting out. I saw Senator Franken talk about this. Uh, they're predicting if the Senate bill passed or the House bill that uh, there'd be increased uh, number of people dying. Well, you know, that is something that gets people's blood pressure up. You know, gets it up so much that maybe they should go see their doctor. But let's just think about it a little bit. Um, anybody who has health care knows that it doesn't automatically save your life. You know, having that plastic card in your wallet is not something that's going to make you healthier automatically. You've got to go see your doctor, get that counseling about, you know, really you could lose 10 pounds. You know what? You know, you should be eating healthier. You should probably quit smoking those are the things that build up over time to make people healthier. It's not like you get a plastic card in your wallet and you're, you're automatically Superman or Superwoman. So when I challenge those that say that uh, you know, cutting 20 million people off health care is not going to cause anybody to have worse outcomes, well, why don't they be the first one to take their family off health insurance? If it's so good for everyone else, why don't they be the first ones to do it? And you'll get very few people to actually do that because they know that having health insurance is a great way to protect not only your financial security, but also the health of your family as well. And personally, uh, my family's reached its deductible every year for the past uh, four or five years due to childhood illnesses and emergency room visits and uh, things that we just couldn't predict that just happened. And we're really glad we had health insurance to make sure that we weren't facing a fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand dollar bill, but something that was much more manageable for our family. Believe it, reading your bio there at the UHPP, uh, your your wife's a doctor. She is. She's a family doctor here in Salt Lake City. 
used to work at the community health centers just like Dr. Red did. Yeah. What's what's her experience been? It changes over time in, in uh, health care, uh, you know, specifically in Utah. The, I guess the national rules uh, would you know have some impact as well. Well, you know, she actually did her medical school in Canada and Montreal um, at McGill University. So she's had some experience with national health care as well. Uh, and uh, she actually is still friends with a lot of physicians that are practicing in Canada. And, and they're quite incredulous that the idea that, that there are people who don't have access because the, the, they're afraid to go to the doctor based on how much it's going to cost. And so they wait for things to get to be so bad that they just have to go to the emergency room. I mean, my wife has seen many more people be able to get access to care, uh, which she does a lot of deliveries, uh, you know, 100 or 150 babies delivered each year, including one at 3 a.m. last night, actually. Mm. Uh, And she helps a lot of uh, families get on the Affordable Care Act, the marketplace insurance. So they get their prenatal care. Their delivery is covered. They, you know, they have access to the medications, prescription drugs that she can send them to get mental health counseling. Uh, this has been a, a great boon for her and other primary care physicians, where they don't have to sit there and call up their friends and beg for some charity care, beg for an MRI, beg to get someone in to be seen by a surgeon without uh, any cost, because these people now have insurance and can do that. And, and almost every week, she's referring a new patient over to Take Care Utah or Enrollment Arm to help get them or their family signed up for insurance. So we've definitely seen an impact in her practice, and, and she's seen the change in her patients' lives as well. Mm. Uh, of course, we don't. Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, and Doctor Red would tell you that uh, we we don't necessarily want people going into the emergency room because that's uh, not the level of care you need. You do have that option, but uh, not the level of care you need. Um, he mentioned uh, community services. There are organizations you can go and get low cost care. That's right. Those are the community health clinics. They're actually federally funded, but also work on a sliding scale payment system, so that people pay based on what uh, they have in their bank account. Um, there are great clinics up in northern Utah, the Midtown Community Health Centers and, and Bear Lake in Logan, um, that deliver fantastic care. But it's primarily care for your bumps, your scrapes, your fevers, and uh, having babies. You know, they are not doing open-heart surgery at those clinics. If someone needs that, they, again, have to get on the phone if those folks don't have insurance. Those doctors have to beg some of their friends who are surgeons to do that care uh, for free. Um, you know, because that family can't afford the $150,000 bill. And, and a lot of the people who attend those clinics are actually those that are, are uh, you know, can't get insurance based on their immigration status. Uh, not everyone, but some. And, and so these are people who really can't get insurance through the Affordable Care Act or through Medicaid. And so this is a really a, a safety net, a last resort for them to get care. It's good care. It's great care uh, for many, but it also is at capacity. So we can't expect, uh, you know, an extra 100, 150,000 Utahns to all of a sudden show up at those clinics and everything will be fine. Um, they are bursting at the seams, even though they've expanded in the past couple of years. Uh, and, and we really do need uh, them to be a safety net and those that are eligible for private insurance and for Medicaid to be able to get on those programs. I do want to talk about Medicaid. Um, what uh, We've been hearing a lot about Medicaid and the Better Care Reconciliation Act. What, what would the act do to Medicaid? substantial. I mean, this is the biggest change in Medicaid since it was uh, started back in 1965. Uh, And really, this is slipping under the radar. A lot of people don't realize this. You know, Medicaid is the federal state health insurance program designed to help those that are pregnant, disabled, and actually primarily kids. About 60% of those in Utah covered by Medicaid are children under age 18. So it's for lower-income families, people earning uh, below 100% of poverty um, and uh, and down. And it's... uh, they're going to change that program so that uh, it doesn't become the, the promise, the, uh, the entitlement, the program that, that has been there for the past 50 or 60 years. It's $771 billion worth of cuts, primarily to fund uh, tax cuts for those earning over $250,000 a year. And those cuts would hurt Utah. I mean, we're pretty efficient with our Medicaid. Um, we, uh, we run a tight ship in Utah. But we'd still see, you know, the Voices for Utah Children did a very interesting study. If we would have impacted or, or made these same cuts to Medicaid 10 years ago, the state would be in the whole $500 million today compared to where we are right now with the existing Medicaid structure. So, you know, you take $500 million out of a program, uh, even over 10 years, that is a lot of money that um, isn't going to go towards pregnant women, towards kids, people with disabilities. And we're going to see enrollment cuts. 
provider reimbursement cuts, as well as changes to benefits, make benefits a lot skimpier. And, and these are the most vulnerable among us, uh, not the people we should be uh, you know, kicking out to the street just to give tax cuts to people who earn over $250,000 a year. We just have a couple minutes left. I want to talk about uh, people with disabilities. We saw a demonstration in Salt Lake recently, uh, people concerned about this. What would the Better Care Reconciliation Act do uh, to people with disabilities? Well, those are people who do depend on Medicaid, and they depend upon it in a way that uh, many people don't realize. So we work with a lot of folks within the disabled rights community, and they are out there working. They're in jobs. Uh, They're sitting behind a desk. Uh, They're going to work every day. And Medicaid is a program that enables them to do that. Um, They're not uh, just sitting at home. What Medicaid does is it enables to have someone come and help them get dressed in the morning, take a shower, get their clothes on, get out the door so they can go to work. And then at night, they do the same thing. They come and they help them get into bed and get a good night's sleep. Medicaid also pays for people to come into homes uh, with disabled children. Uh, so that uh, someone can watch a respirator or watch a child during the night so that the parents can sleep and get up in the morning and go to work. Those are the programs that are most under threat from this program, because those, from the, the cuts in the Senate bill, because those are optional programs that the state does because it actually gets people out into the workforce, gets people out of the home, keeps them out of institutions, and saves money overall. It's actually cheaper to do that than to have someone in an institution. Um, but those are the cuts that are going to happen the fastest because uh, those are not mandatory. Uh, and so that's where we're going to see a big change within the folks with disabilities, you know, finding that, you know what, they're not going to get that person coming to get them out of bed in the morning, which means they're going to have to move into a nursing home full time. Just a minute left. Uh, what would you suggest to people, no matter where they are on this issue, the senators are going on recess soon. There'll be a couple of uh, weeks where people can uh, perhaps get their ear. How best to, to do that? And, you know, this is actually good. We need more time to read this bill. I'm, I'm reading a new report every day where someone's diving into it and discovering something new. Uh, for instance, we just discovered today, yesterday that the enrollment period for newborns is cut in half. Instead of 60 days to sign up a new baby, the bill only gives people 30 days. We already run into that deadline quite a bit at 60 days. So there's a lot buried in this bill that we want people to know about and find out. And and we don't want senators voting on this bill and then discovering lots and lots of messy details later on. So I would say read your newspaper, check your websites, find out what you can about this bill, and then call Senator Hatch and Senator Lee and tell them what you think about it, no matter what you think about it. Tell them your story. They need to hear from us. And if you're at a Fourth of July parade and you see a local politician, a mayor or a state representative, go up to them and tell them your opinion as well. Uh, Politics is not off limits on the 4th of July. In fact, uh, politics is the reason we celebrate the 4th of July. There's a bit of civil disobedience that happened back uh, in 1776. That's a good reason for us to go out there and do it again this year. Jason Stevenson is Education and Communications Director with Utah Health Policy Project. He's joined us. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate being on. And we appreciate Dr. Red, medical doctor and uh, state representative, being on with us earlier. Keep the comments coming, upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.